Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Anthony Cow. My guest today is Natasha Lance Rogoff. Natasha is an author, filmmaker, and TV producer. During the 1990s, she brought Sesame Street to post-communist Russia. Now, she has a book about that experience. It's titled Muppets in Moscow, published October 2022 by Roman and Littlefield. Muppets in Moscow offers a highly accessible, intimate, and captivating account of what it took to both transplant and translate Sesame Street into Ulitsa Sazam, as the show is known in Russian. It's a tale of kidnapping Elmo dolls, airlifting tree parts across the Atlantic, and Russian children ultimately falling in love with classic characters like Bert and Ernie, as well as new characters created for Ulitsa Sazam. Thank you, Natasha Lance Rogoff, for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. What a great summary. <laughs> well, you know, as someone who's also fascinated by post-Soviet history and, and society, um, I, I really loved a book, uh, found it a smooth read, so I'm really glad to be able to talk to you today. Um, me too. <laughs> so in the book's introduction, there, there was something that uh, jumped out as amusing to me. You you mentioned how you changed your legal name from Susan to Natasha after getting obsessed with Russian literature. Uh, What in particular drew you to Russian culture back then and what kept you hooked? I think it was just the the absurdity of the uh, literature that I had read. You know, it was um, both uh, mysterious, this other society, and somehow, you know, not um, influenced by uh, consumerism in the same way that American society was. And then the soulfulness of the conversations that all the characters would have, you know, I, I felt like they were my people, you know, I kind of got sucked in and uh, it was also very, you know, both romantic and dark. Interesting. And, and before you produced Ulitsa Sazam, you had spent a fair bit of time in the Soviet Union during the 80s, and, and you were getting to know artists, you were doing some freelance journalism and, and documentaries. Uh, what are some of your best memories from those times, and how did those experiences ultimately lead you to produce Sesame Street in Russia? Well, I, I moved there when I was 22 years old as a foreign exchange student. Um, there were about 30 Americans in both uh, Moscow and in what was then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. And it was part of our cultural exchange, you know, with the Soviet Union, because then, you know, the, it was, it was 
uh, communist society. And um, with the, the exchanges were quite limited at that time. So there weren't that many Americans uh, going over to, to live in, in, uh, in Russia. Um, so I felt, you know, very lucky to be there. And at the same time, fascinated by this other society, you know, that had a completely different economic system. Uh, and everywhere I went, you know, people would, would ask me, where is it better you know, in America or in Russia, <laughs> it was just like a constant refrain. Um, and um, fascinating to uh, meet with the underground um, rock musicians and cultural figures from that society who had a really difficult life at that time. Um, many of them uh, had to deal with their music being banned. Rock and roll was illegal. Um, at the time, and um, they couldn't record their music. The state owned all the recording studios. Uh, they couldn't sell their music. And many of my friends had to pass their tapes, uh, you know, it was cassette tapes. So this is all before digital uh, content was created. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a really um, incredibly intimate and um, exciting uh, you know, time uh, when when concerts would pop up on their own, and they'd be they people would come uh, after hearing about them from word of mouth. Um, they would last about you know thirty minutes if you were lucky, and then the KGB would come and shut it all down. <laughs> so it was uh, you know very different from from living in America at that time, and I think I just. Uh, really fell in love not only with the culture, but also the struggle that people were experiencing to express themselves freely. Um, and this also impacted the uh, not only artists, but the LGBTQ community, which I wrote about, you know, at that time in 1983 for the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, it was, it was, you know, kind of as an American uh, used to more freedoms I'm not saying that everything is great in our own country, but I think it was um, at that time, the system itself, a centralized system, had its own inherent problems. Um, and I you know, was able to, to see how that impacted average Soviet citizens in their daily life, lives. Hmm. And so you were hanging out with rock musicians, which does come up later in the book. Um, but how did you get to that, uh, from that to children's television? I think you also remark in the book that when you were first approached, you're like, well, wait a second, I, I haven't had a lot of experience in this particular domain. You know, how, how did you feel? How did you, uh, how did you get on board? Well, I thought, I, I mean, I really thought I was the last person in the world to, you know, produce this show in Russia. I mean, I had zero children's television experience. I, most of my friends, you know, in film and TV did not have children. My sister had three children and, you know, I, I wasn't even in a relationship. So when they asked me, uh, the, there were two executives who approached me at a screening of my, uh, my documentary film which was about um, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I had followed a steel worker, a police chief in charge of economic crime who was putting people in prison. 
and uh, conservative fascists who would be willing to do anything to avoid the collapse of the Soviet empire. And they were uh, uh, boisterously um, uh, anti-capitalist and anti-Semitic. So it was, it was um, not, you know, I did not expect these, you know, Sesame Street executives to come up and say, would you help us after looking at my film, take Sesame Street to Russia, bring the Russian children, the Muppets. I mean, it was, it was kind of nuts, you know, and um, I, I didn't know, I was sort of confused, but also really intrigued because what they were trying to do was remarkable. I mean, this was during a period just after the fall of the Soviet empire there weren't uh, that many children's programs uh, for kids um, at that time in a post-Soviet society. There was very little television production going on um, because it was a period of extreme uh, economic turmoil for for the country with uh, collapsing ruble and um, and also uh, you know the break apart of the of the empire itself where countries would republics were splitting off and becoming independent countries like Ukraine and Georgia and Armenia. So when uh, Sesame Street explained that they had bipartisan support from the U S Congress uh, and then Senator Biden had spearheaded um, approval of a Russian version of Sesame Street, I thought, Wow, this this could really make a huge impact in this country, and you know it was it was a gift. I mean, when I when I look back on this time and think about how I was randomly drawn into this, um, and ultimately, as I write about in the book, you know, it, it changed my life and the life of millions of children, and it also led to me having uh, my own children. Right. Um, and, you know, on the note of things like, uh, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the collapsing ruble at that time, uh, you go to Moscow amidst those circumstances, and your first task is to find a local investor. Um, talk a bit about what that process was like. Oh, yes. Well, that was not what I expected. Um, we, uh, I was, uh, by this point, I was working closely with Baxter Urist from uh, Sesame Workshop, then called Children's Television Workshop, and Leonid Zagalski, who was a very good friend of mine who uh, lived in Moscow. He's Russian. He was a, a quite well-known Russian journalist. Um, and we had to raise money for the show because the U.S. Congress wouldn't release the funding unless um, the Russians had some skin in the game and they were paying for uh, half of it. Like it had to be matched, whatever funding we were putting in. So the first um, sponsor that that we we had hoped to to snag, <laughs> essentially, was uh, Boris Berezovsky, who was a rising media mogul and... Um, he also ran a, a huge car car company um, at the time, and it took us months to get a meeting with him. I mean, we would just ask everybody, "Oh, does anybody know him? Couldn't we meet him?" You know, and finally we get a meeting with him, and um, we explain to him how uh, the Muppets, you know, would bring uh, idealistic values of tolerance and freedom of expression. Um, to post-Soviet society, 
and we'd be building a whole new neighborhood and original Muppets, as you said, uh, Anthony. And um, so, you know, he was he was excited by the idea, but um, he then asked, uh, you know, is Big Bird going to be in the production? He was familiar with Sesame Street, and and I was like, no, no, Big Bird won't be in it. We'll we'll have a, an original puppet to replace Big Bird. And he, he seemed a little sad about that. I think he, he kind of liked Big Bird. I mean, even just the idea of sitting there and listening to this oligarch say Big Bird, I was very encouraged that we were on the right track. And uh, much to our surprise, uh, Berezovsky agreed to become a sponsor of the show. This was so thrilling for us. I mean, we did not anticipate that our our first meeting with him would be this successful. But then three weeks later, um, you know, we had to, to process paperwork with his lawyers and everything. And three weeks later, um, I was back in the States for, for, you know, after I finished that, that one trip. And uh, my colleague Leonid called me and said, uh, there's been a, there's been an explosion. And uh, Berezovsky's car was bombed and he was hurt. So um, we found out that he was burned over a, a large part of his body and he had to be treated in London, uh, or at least we assume that's where he was was going. We, we didn't actually know. And uh, that was the end of the, the deal with him. I mean, he survived and, and he went on to actually become the Russian president's key advisor later and was instrumental in bringing Putin to power eventually. But um, he had bigger, bigger uh, things to, um, to take care of than supporting a children's puppet show. And he was no longer uh, a possible partner for us. Mm -hmm. And after Berezovsky, you talk about in a book how you end up finding a, a female lead investor, Irina Borisova. And I think Leonid describes her as, as a, a rare goose because female entrepreneurs at that time in Russia are not you know, that common. Um, you know, what are some of the challenges uh, as well as uh, challenges as well as maybe more amusing and rewarding moments uh, as you were dealing with uh, perhaps a more patriarchal business environment at that time? Well, we were very, very lucky to find Irina um, as a partner. Uh, there were uh, really two, I think, at the time that I knew of um, women running advertising agencies and production houses. And from the moment I met her, I mean, I wasn't sure if she had the money that she said she had, but I really thought her heart was in the right place. And rather than constantly asking me about, you know, the profit margins and, you know, from the advertising on either side of the show, because we weren't going to have advertising in the body of the show since it was for children. Um, I really felt that this was something that she um, wanted to do not only for her eight-year-old daughter, but for the many children in, in her country. Um, so that was, uh, you know, very lucky to, to find her. And um, we became very good friends. I mean, even though there were enormous difficulties, challenges for her financially, and I write about it in the book, I think in a way that's also hilarious because this is not really how business is supposed to go. And, um, uh, you know, but together as a team, I mean, we had, uh, 
uh, 400 artists working on the show. That's puppeteers, writers, producers, filmmakers, set designers, uh, actors. It was, you know, quite a diverse group of people. Uh, we had Russians, Ukrainians, Armenians, uh, all kinds of people working together, uh, you know, trying to create a different future for children. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Mm. And, you know, in assembling that diverse team, can you talk a bit more about that experience and some of the challenges and, and culture clashes that you faced? Well, as you say, you know, you mentioned earlier about uh, the patriarchal society. And, you know, uh, it's ironic because the Soviet Union had many extremely progressive policies, like abortion was legalized in the 1920s. Uh, it was possible to divorce your husband as a woman without your your husband present. <laughs> um, and so, you know, at the same time, and we still see this today in the lineup of, uh, you know, uh, Putin's um, top officials, you know, it's like almost exclusively men, not, not much has changed there. Um, but, you know, when I took the job, I thought I'm going to uh, build a team that that is diverse, and we uh, were able to hire uh, fifty more than fifty percent women, and we had many women in key technical roles. Um, and the, the the my colleagues that I worked with thought this was stunning; they had never seen this before, and they were so competent, you know, so artistically brilliant. the The set designer, if you see what the set looks like. I mean, it's it's out of this world. Probably uh, next to the U.S. show, the most beautiful set ever built of a Sesame Street co-production. Um, so you were asking me also, though, about the many challenges. I think, or oh yes, <laughs> let's talk about the challenges. <laughs> uh, the challenges. There were a lot of, in addition to the violence that was going on, you know, mostly outside the studio and in the TV station. There were also cultural clashes um, between the American and the, you know, team of artists in Moscow. Um, you know, the cultures were really different. And um, as a result, the uh, developing a children's television show together meant that we were going to be butting heads on a number of um, uh, artistic decisions. And, you know, to, to mention a few of them, you know, initially the Moscow creative team didn't like the Muppets 
and they said that they wanted to use their own traditional Russian puppets. Um, and the head writer reminded me that they had a uh, revered puppetry tradition dating back to the 16th century, and they didn't need the American Muppets. And that uh, debate went on for months uh, until they eventually visited the U.S. And uh, after meeting the U.S. puppeteers and seeing the set in Queens in New York, and also the most, I think, uh, transformational moment that 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 convinced them was when uh, a, a group of teenagers approached us uh, when we were downtown in New York. And they saw the Bert and Ernie, uh, Bert and Ernie on the back of my black bomber jacket, and they came up and and started yelling, "Yo, Bert! Yo, Bert and Ernie, my main man!" You know, like you know, across the street, and then came up and started, you know, talking with the Russians about what were their who were their favorite Muppets and what scenes they like best. And when the, the when the Russians saw this, it was like the first time they understood the reach of Sesame Street, that that this show could, you know, impact the lives of so many young people. So that that was, you know, really, really amazing. But there were other challenges too, you know, not only um, around the, the, the puppets themselves, um, but also around the script writing. And initially, the scripts that we got in from the 40 or so writers were... Um, very abstract. Uh, they didn't include any physical comedy. Uh, slapstick comedy was was not funny necessarily to uh, Russian audiences. They used a lot of wordplay um, that might have been too sophisticated for young children. And my favorite one was when um, one of the script writers submitted a script um, where uh, the characters in the storyboard um, uh, were were uh, mopping. One was mopping a floor, and then some text came on the screen, and it said "D for depression." <laughs> yeah, that was a very very amusing anecdote to read in the book. <laughs> yeah, but there were there yeah. were other other challenges too, because initially the group the the music director wanted to feature only classical music, and I understood where she was coming from because. Uh, most of the animated, incredibly brilliant, world-renowned uh, animation that had been done by Soviet artists um, used uh, classical music. So it made sense that she was saying that. But the idea of, of creating a new TV show, which, like Sesame Street, would include diverse, innovative music, is really what I was hoping for. And I thought would also make the show more popular, as well as give a lot of the um, rock musicians that had not had opportunities to express themselves an opportunity to write music for the show. So eventually, uh, you know, maybe maybe it's in Muppets in Moscow in the book about what happens, but it's it's quite a saga of trans of of. Um, you know, the way thing, the way change happens, you get to see this happen in slow motion. Um, and this is applicable to so many societies in Venezuela, in the Middle East, you know, how does a society that has been a closed society open up? How does it happen? And when it comes to puppets and children, it's an incredible 
you know, very intimate view into the society. Well, listeners, guess you'll have to open up the book and read it to find out exactly how Ulitsa Sazam helps open up a closed society. But you know, talking about the book itself, uh, what made you decide it was time to write Muppets in Moscow almost three decades after all the events that we were just talking about? Well, you know, I had written an early uh, draft or notes just after we um, the 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 production aired, and it became a huge hit, and the show ran uh, for over a decade uh, across eleven time zones of the former Soviet Union, and it was seen by millions and millions of children. And I felt that it was just you know as the as the relation between relations between the U.S. and and. Russia or the West and Russia deteriorated in the 2000s, you know, 2010, 2011, 2014, leading up to the invasion of Crimea. I just felt like we were missing something and that this snapshot of this time taught so much uh, that we needed to know today, as well as explaining some of the mistakes that we made along the way um, by trying to move things so quickly in Russia. Um, so that was one reason. And then another reason was that every show I was watching on Netflix or um, uh, uh, on Amazon showed Russians as like thugs, criminals, prostitutes. And that didn't ring true to the you know incredibly artistic, brilliant, passionate, people that I worked with, the artists who really were sacrificing so much to build a different country with different values. So on a note of, you, know, you talk about the invasion of Crimea, the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine happens in February 2022. And that must have been right as you were putting finishing touches on, on the book. Uh, to what extent did that affect your writing or, or the marketing of the book? Well, it was heartbreaking. I mean, it was just heartbreaking to see this. And, you know, immediately I was on the phone on WhatsApp with um, my former colleagues, um, many of whom had been protesting and had been actively um, uh, writing against the war, against the uh, special operation um, on social media. Hmm. And some of them had to get out within 24 hours of Putin passing the law against uh, speaking out on social media against the war. So um, that was that was a very harrowing uh, period and um, shocking to see what was going on. Um, it, there were also people I was speaking with who were in Ukraine uh, who had worked on the show, as well as people who are Ukrainian and lived in Moscow and didn't feel safe and had to move into like smaller villages, uh, kind of go underground. So, um, you know, it was, it's, it's very sad. I think it's, it's, it's sad for the, uh, people in Russia who tried so hard to, um, change their country. So many people got killed, you know, who were trying great men and women, um, and, uh, at the same time, you know, I, I, I woke up at four o'clock in the morning, one morning, and I, I realized that the, um, 
you know, the more than a million uh, young men and women who are leaving Russia in the case of the men, because they don't want to um, fight in the war. And, you know, for the 20 and 30 year olds, they don't want to support the war. Uh, and they, they are Sesame Street's generation. I mean, they grew up on our show. So, you know, that's, that's the legacy uh, that I feel we left, that we left. And that's the same for the Ukrainians who are fighting for their independence, who also grew up on the show and are the same age cohort now. Mm. Yeah. And I hear that there's rumblings of like a Ukrainian Sesame Street that's uh, maybe getting produced. So perhaps there is there's, more. There are. There are. <laughs> there is something going on right now because uh, Sesame Street has been creating content um, which is being used uh, by uh, Ukrainian refugees, uh, refugee children. Um, but that would be wonderful. But I also think that if we get the chance again in Russia, which I hope we will, that we will be able to come back and Zeliboba, Kubik, and Businka, the Slavic uh, Muppets, will be able to um, laugh with uh, millions of children again. Yeah, we can only hope that uh, the situation will improve and, you know, Sesame Street will be able to return to Moscow and Russia uh, yet again. Um, well, thank you so much, Natasha Lance Rogoff. This was an enlightening conversation. Uh, listeners, if you want to learn more about Natasha's experiences and find out what happens with all the twists that she had talked about, make sure to check out her book, Muppets in Moscow from Roman and Littlefield. Thank you very much again, Natasha, and take care.